1958, and Jimmy Stewart is dizzy and way out of his league. The movie? Vertigo. And welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson, and this is the podcast where me and my wonderful, fantastic co-host go through the movies on the AFI Top 100 list, and we have now reached 50 movies. This is our 50th movie. Oh my god. Paul will be here in just a moment, but before he is, let's talk about last week's movie, To Kill a Mockingbird, a movie that we both really, 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 really loved, and so did you guys, including Melanie Manning, who tweeted to us, Hot take, To Kill a Mockingbird is, the movie is better than the book. You know, she says, at least as far as adaptations go, it stays very close to the book. But that is not bad when you have actors and filmmakers breathing life into these characters with excellent filmmaking. She says that To Kill a Mockingbird is what an adaptation should be. Slack Babbitt, who is at Law Monster 13, noted that, you know, when we started to raise the issue here in the episode about, like, was Tom Robinson actually murdered by the cops when they say that he ran away and they shot him. He reminded us that in the book, it was way, way, way worse that they specify that as Tom Robinson was, quote unquote, running away from the cops, he was shot 17 times in the back. Over at the Facebook group, there were a ton of interesting conversations. Um, One of the ones that really stuck out was a conversation kind of looking at the different angles of is Atticus Finch a white savior, which is something that Harper Lee kind of rolled back a bit in her sort of follow up book about it. Go set a watchman. Um, I pulled this quote from Todd Lawrence because I thought I kind of summed up all the different angles of all the different debates. Todd Lawrence wrote, I think the white savior complaint is a fine lens to be aware of, but I don't think it mars this film. At its core, To Kill a Mockingbird is about learning to see. We watch Scout's understanding of Atticus and Boo Radley evolve, and then we watch Atticus's faith in the law evolve. So it's more than a little poetic and beautiful that our understanding of To Kill a Mockingbird should also evolve. It was written by a white daughter of the Deep South who is struggling to see truth despite her social conditioning. Does the nobility of Harper Lee's intentions make her just another white savior herself? Should she have attempted to write a book from Tom Robinson's POV despite knowing nothing of it? You know, and yeah, Todd, these are a lot of the questions that I think are so fascinating to wrestle with and talk out and hash out and maybe never come to a resolution, but maybe art doesn't have a resolution. Another couple of interesting uh, things that people pointed out this week, Ian Stewart wrote that he thought my comment about how To Kill a Mockingbird might have influenced John Carpenter's Halloween. He thought that was interesting because when he watched Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he thought a lot of The Thing, which, yeah, totally. Um, and also, I loved this, this made me die. Michael Pierce, who is at Mike79P, he wrote, Oh, Amy, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that the score in To Kill a Mockingbird sounded like early Spielberg. Who was playing piano on Bernstein's score? John Williams. Oh, my God. And now I'm like a complete truth or conspiracy theorist. That blows my mind. Thank you so much for bringing that fun fact to all of our attentions. I wonder, I wonder how aware John Williams himself is of that. If he's like, oh man, this reminds me of something I did a million times. Is it in his own DNA? That's fascinating. Okay, so to kick off our talk about this week's movie, the Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo, our call out last week was we asked you guys to pitch a movie to us, a movie that Hitchcock might have made about another disorder. Let's see what y'all thought of. Alfred Hitchcock presents Kidney Stones. I'd love him to make a conspiracy thriller set in 2019 called the Mandela Effect. 
I would like to see a movie called Narcolepsy that follows the unconscious Argentinian around the Moulin Rouge through an Argentinian lens. My pick is Dermatillomania, which is the uh, the chronic picking of skin. Uh, and I'm thinking a, a mid to late 90s Winona Ryder as a star. I think the Hitchcock film that should be made is based on Crabgrass disease, where you think everyday objects have been replaced by imposter objects. One man has a secret, and those in power can't hold him down, because, quite frankly, he flails around too much. Jimmy Stewart stars in Alfred Hitchcock's Restless Leg Syndrome. Okay, I totally, totally am freaked out by dermatillomania, that I cannot handle that. Also, by the way, speaking of strange phobias, um, I'm kind of mad that this one was introduced to me, but have you guys heard of tryptophobia? Because that is one that I did not know of. Somebody told me about it. I Googled it. I wish I did not Google it because now I'm wondering if I have it. Don't look up tryptophobia. Whatever you do, have a phobia of Googling the word tryptophobia. And if you do, please don't send me any pictures. But now, let's welcome somebody back into the studio who I have no phobias about whatsoever. Is the world's greatest co-host, Paul Shear. The year is 1958. The top song is At The Hop by Danny and the Juniors. Super glue is invented. The price of a postage stamp is only four cents. President Dwight Eisenhower signs the National Aeronautics and Space Act, creating NASA. It's a big year for space, with the U.S. launching its first ever satellite, Explorer 1. 14-year-old Bobby Fischer wins the United States Chess Championships. Uh, big movies include South Pacific, Anti-Mame, and of course, today's film Vertigo, rated number nine in the AFI's 2007 list up a whopping 52 points from the 1997 list where it was rated at number 61. Amy, Vertigo, who's in it? What's it about? Vertigo, it is directed by Alfred Hitchcock and it is about a disgraced police detective. His name is Scotty. He's played by James Stewart who we've seen several times on this list before. James Stewart is disgraced because he was on a regular mission helping his police cop buddy chase a criminal. He realized he had vertigo, nearly fell from a roof. His buddy died trying to rescue him. And now in the trauma of this, he's hired by an old college friend to stalk the college friend's wife. The friend just says, my wife has this thing. She disappears. She goes inside her head. I think she's haunted from this woman in the past named Carlotta Valdez from vintage San Francisco history and lore. He follows the wife. He falls in love with the wife. The wife dies, and then the wife comes back in the form of a woman with the exact same face. Dun, dun, dun! And that is Kim Novak in a dual role. And it's interesting because the film Vertigo is often blamed for creating or popularizing the misconception that vertigo means a fear of heights. It actually means a sensation of whirling and loss of balance. And that's often associated with looking down from a great height. So Hitchcock is presenting it the right way. But I think people just assume that vertigo is a fear of heights. Anyway, a little little background on vertigo, the uh, disorder for you. Do you want to know a rejected title? This title did not make it very far at all. But it was a title that uh, screenwriter Samuel A. Taylor, the third screenwriter, kicked around to mm-hmm. Hitchcock, or at least just blurted it out once, to lay a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, as a joke? Uh, probably. Oh, probably. my God. But they did say, to lay a ghost? No. <laughs> <laughs> to lay a ghost. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, like to catch a thief? To lay, to a, lay ghost. a ghost. Do you have vertigo? Um, I don't have vertigo. Do you? No, I don't at all. I mean, I have, I like, I like heights actually, mm-hmm. but I did, I took a trapeze class once and I learned that what I cannot do is jump from a tall thing. 
Or why would you want to? Right? Like, I can't jump off a platform, but I can stare down forever. There's something about, like, not being in control of being at the top that I can't. I hate slides. It's the same thing. I love slides. Where I get the feeling the most, the, the fear of heights the most is, and I can only kind of pull it to this one location. But in Las Vegas at the Palms Hotel, they have, like, a skylight in a bar that shoots down to the ground. So it's a, a floor light, uh, essentially. Uh, so when you're standing over it, you're just hovering in the air. And I get nervous when I stand on it. I feel like I'm tempting fate. I don't like it. I don't like standing on that clear glass tile. I'm like, why am I tempting fate here? Zip lines? Oh, yeah, do that. No yeah, problem. they're fine. They're yeah. fine. <laughs> I'm just picturing you in Vegas getting like, the uh, vertigo zoom in, zoom out, yeah. that crazy camera effect that Hitchcock came up with here, getting that while looking down at like just some dude's beer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that uh, technique that he uses to create the sensation of vertigo, right? This is um, this dolly zoom where you're basically uh, dollying out and zooming in at the same time. So the camera is physically moving away from a subject while simultaneously zooming in. Uh, you actually saw it in Jaws as well. But I think a, that's the second most famous use, at least to me. It's yeah, like right. You're I looking mean, at like Brody's face. Then he was like, it's really intense. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people give that uh, up to Hitchcock for creating that. Um, but it, it wasn't actually him. People say it was actually this uh, second unit cameraman, Erwin Roberts, who created that. So a little, you know, a little just uh, do for Erwin. Props for to Erwin. Erwin, we wouldn't have had that awesome scene in Jaws without you. Uh, I remember going on the Universal tour and like watching how they created this effect like back when I was a kid. It was so cool. To many people, and we talked about this a little bit last week, this is their favorite movie of all time on the sight and sound list. Uh, after years of kind of steadily moving up the charts, it overtook Citizen Kane, you know, and it's viewed by many people as Hitchcock's masterpiece, his best work. Yeah. I mean, this film, you know, it came out in 58. I don't even think it made it on the sight and sound list until the eighties. And then it steadily climbed up and, you know, a couple lists ago, the sight and sound decided to split their list into two groups, the critics list and the director's list. They mm -hmm. had critics vote and directors vote. And mind you, this isn't even a ton of people. Like I think Vertigo is on the number one list with like a grand total of 191 votes. Oh, you wow. know, that's just yeah. 191 votes. Um, and that's on the critics list. It's not actually number one on the director's list. It's critics who love this movie. It's oh, critics who love talking about this movie. And it's critics who came to this movie much, much, much later after it came out, well, which is interesting. Like, I know we're going to do reviews at the end, but I will. it's not a spoiler to say, like, when this movie came out, people are like, it's okay. Little goofy. I don't know. It's fine. Hitchcock was embarrassed by this film. It was a flop when it came out. And he pulled it from circulation. It was only kind of put back into the world in 1983 after he had died. His family put it back out there. And that's where this film kind of had a second life. It's almost like a Disney gaming of the system when they were like, we're going to hide Bambi. You're going to really want Bambi. Yeah. And then it comes back out because when you read people talk about Vertigo, almost nobody can talk about Vertigo without talking about either the rediscovery of it or then the restoration of it that they did in the 90s. Like, But it's smart because this film took on this mythology. I mean, this film is a myth and then it took on this extra mythology around it. And I think a lot of why people love it so much is maybe not even because it's the best Hitchcock, but it might be the most Hitchcock, where, like, his career ended. We saw the entire body of work he made. We saw mm -hmm. all of his fixations. We saw all of his obsessions. We really knew how he treated actresses after this, you know, because this comes out before Psycho. 
Hitchcock's career is done. And then you dig through everything and you're like, this one, Vertigo. This has him with women. This has him as controlling. This has his sort of like evocativeness. This has the way that he loves to put audiences in a spell. You know, this is a film that is so different from Citizen Kane in so many ways, because I think of Citizen Kane as perfect. You know, Mm -hmm. I think of Citizen Kane as like this flawless, magical clock where everything is in place and everything ticks and everything is beautiful and everything is smart and all the dialogue is great. Vertigo is something different. It's like this like maddening, strange, I don't know why in my head the image is like, it's like if you had a peanut butter sandwich with bananas and bacon and you're like, this shouldn't work, but it works. And you're like conflicted and you keep eating the sandwich. Yeah, well, I was thinking about this as well. It feels to me like a Kubrick film in the sense that it's really pushing a boundary here. I feel like, and it's an adult movie. It's showing a protagonist that we now come to recognize as normal, you know, and uh, to go to the most often used example, the Walter White example, the flawed hero, the anti-hero. I mean, Jimmy Stewart in this movie is not the Jimmy Stewart that we know from other films that we've seen on this list. He's a very flawed, damaged character. Um, Yeah, I would even say this movie... He's not even an anti-hero, but this movie is anti-hero. Yes. Because it opens not only with him not doing a heroic act, you know, by like falling off of the balcony or nearly falling off the balcony, letting a criminal go free. The actual hero in that scene, the cop who goes to rescue him, dies. Like the hero dies at the very beginning of the movie. The cop who could have caught the criminal was like, I'm going to save my friend. Doesn't work. Heroism is dead. Minute two. I love the way the film opens, you know, from the black and white titles into color, into these um, this really provocative image of this woman's face and then into her eye, which I was trying to mimic last night after I watched it, keeping your eye open that long without blinking. I tried to find some sort of fact on whoever that woman was. That wasn't Kim Novak, was it? Were you it? doing that in the mirror? I was doing it to myself. I know when my eye can blink. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, but I love that because he's asking you to study this face. Yeah. He's like, look at this face. Look at a woman's face. And when you look at her lips like that, you start to think like, are those the lips of a liar? Like, where right. are we going with this? When you look at her eye and he starts kind of widening in and vertigo, the word vertigo just comes out of the pupil and you go into this spiral and then this other spiral and then this other spiral. Like, And by the way, like great eye in- acting. Yeah. It's like the shot in, in Psycho at the end where like you see Marion mm-hmm. Crane dead and then the camera spirals into her eye and it spirals out. Like he loves pupils. Well, I wonder if that idea like, you know, the eyes are the window to the soul. And in Psycho, you're looking in an eye that is devoid of a soul. Dead. Whoa. And in right. Vertigo, you keep being in this building that doesn't have windows. And if it did, people would still be alive. I mean, this movie is a lot about faces and a lot about silence. And in a way, I kind of believe this is like Hitchcock's version of a silent film. For the first hour and 30 minutes, there is very little dialogue besides the opening scene and the scene in the boatyard. It's a lot of Jimmy Stewart following Kim Novak and watching him watch her. And in a way, you're getting put into his POV kind of just becoming obsessed with an image, not the person, the image of the person. And the yeah, she's not even making eye contact, Kim Novak, is no. it forever. It's just him driving and music and her walking. That Bernard Herrmann score, fantastic. A little similar to Psycho, inspired by Tristan and Isolde. Am I pronouncing it right? I don't know. Uh, but you don't need much dialogue to know what's going on. No, in fact, I was going to talk about this later, but I was going to talk about it now because this is the perfect time. There's this movie that came out last year called The Green Fog. Have you heard about it? No. 
Okay, there's this experimental Canadian director that I've been obsessed with ever since I moved to LA and heard about him. He did, News of him did not make it to where I was in Oklahoma. Okay. His name is Guy Madden. Uh, we actually gave him an award for this movie, The Green Fog, this year at LAFCA. It's kind of complicated to explain. It's a remake of Vertigo. However, it's a remake of Vertigo made from footage of other movies shot in San Francisco. Chuck Norris movies, all sorts Whoa. of movies. All these movies out of San Francisco as a backdrop assembled into being the arc of vertigo the man the meetings the woman the following you know the murder the wow. mystery the depression chuck norris is in the depression montage and what guy madden and um, evan and galen johnson his like two co-directors do is they just assemble it based on mood and music they cut out all the dialogue there's almost no dialogue in the entire movie except the music carries you through. You know what Vertigo is, and they just have this music, have this imagery. The characters change from scene to scene because they're all right. played by different people. And yet it somehow is Vertigo because this is a movie that exists sort of in a mythic, gigantic, emotional mood board state without needing dialogue. You know, so you talking about it as a silent film is exactly right. And that's exactly what Guy Madden did here. Like, here, here is this. This is one of the only lines of dialogue in the entire film. It's a woman at a restaurant sitting with her friend. And he just keeps cutting every time everybody opens their mouth. So it's a mix of music and just breath. Ah, and then this one line. I, um... Uh, I go to the museum every, every Saturday. And... This is what I think part of the vertigo magic is. You know, like, sometimes I get frustrated about the way we talk about film. You know, we the grander gigantic we, including mm -hmm. me, where we get really plot focused. You know, I, we have such a tendency to do that, even me, to be like nitpicky, blah, 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 blah. Right. And sometimes I think nitpicking really matters. And sometimes I think it doesn't because the film is operating on a different level. And this is a film where it's never about the dialogue. It's not about like the quips. It's not about cleverness. No. It's all about what cinema is because cinema is not supposed to be like a fable telling you like, here's how to behave, which is how we think I think a lot of films are supposed to be now. We're like, well, that character didn't respond in a way that I think is proper and therefore they're canceled or whatever. Vertigo is all just about capturing this feeling, translating it to the audience without words. I mean, you don't have Jimmy Stewart go, I'm mad and depressed. You have Jimmy Stewart's face bathed in red, blinking and blinking and blinking. And that gets it across. This is a purely visual film in a way that, you know, Citizen Kane with perfect visuals is not. This is all visual. Well, and that's what brings me back to the Kubrick idea. Like this is a much more internal film. I think that a lot of Kubrick's films are about what's going on inside the mind of our lead character. And in a way, this film subverts your expectation of what a Hitchcock film is. Because we open up with a scene kind of shot like rope, a big wide apartment. And we're watching Jimmy Stewart, who we're familiar with. But he's a little bit different than what we know. He's a little bit more catty, a little bit more of um a playboy, if you will, like you said, kind of like teasing Midge, being kind of oblivious. He's a guy who has swank on his coffee table. Swank. Yes. He's got swank. He's like, hey, I'm a bachelor. I don't even put this up when a lady comes over. <laughs> but then once we get out of those first two scenes, you really are left alone with him in the silences. And I think maybe why this is so personal to Hitchcock is this is what Hitchcock does. He's behind a lens looking at people. I know a lot of people say like this is... Hitchcock doing a self-examination of himself, like becoming infatuated and angry with this blonde woman and, and, and watching her and obsessing with her. And then when 
you know, later in the movie, she's not doing things right. He gets very controlling of her. And that's that was Hitchcock's M.O. His entire career is like driving his female actresses insane. And I think that's exactly why critics love this film is because they can just point to it and say, there it is. Right. That is it. That is what he was doing. And therefore, we have decided that you're the most perfect, most representational. I mean, you don't jump from 61 on the list to nine in 10 years unless people are talking about this film like crazy because it is fun to analyze in the historical context of who Hitchcock was, you know, which to me, I feel like a lot of different emotions about that. It's kind of weird that we're like layering an artist biography onto this film so that we can decide that it is the best. And yet this film does have a genuine hold on people. And yet my favorite Hitchcock films are the ones that aren't aren't like this. Like I really love like the quippy, sardonic, funny stuff. I love like his British ones, his early 30s ones. I love it when he just is mean and nasty and funny. And there's not much humor in this. So it's weird that the most representational isn't representational, but it is representational. It's everything. Well, it's interesting because we're also talking about this world where do we separate the art from the artist? And I think here's a perfect example of how the artist is making something that is important to him. And yes, he's pushing forward the medium, but this story seems very personal to him. Like he worked with three different screenwriters to get this story the right way, you know, throwing away scripts and really being very hands on in it and talking about the silent nature of it. You know, this is a movie that he didn't want the reveal scene, like where Kim Novak writes the letter and says, this is the plot. This is the whole story. He didn't want that in the movie. He took it out of the movie. It was only forced in the movie. I think that's one of the reasons like Hitchcock was kind of upset with this film because I think he wanted this movie to live without that scene. And how crazy would it be without that reveal scene? Yeah. I mean, I think personally for me, I would like it a lot less without the reveal scene. Mm. Because, I mean, now we just live in this era where it's like somebody mopes around and acts really weird. And in the last act, they're like, I had a miscarriage. And you're like, okay. I mean, that's so many films and it drives me nuts. We're like the person holds back the one piece of information that explains why the character is acting like this. I don't know why I'm using miscarriage. I guess because I'm thinking of that like horrible Angelina Jolie Brad Pitt movie by the sea where that was like the whole thing. We lost a baby. And now you're like, that's why you're fighting. Okay. I think it'd be so much more interesting for a film like that. If at the beginning they're like, we had a miscarriage. Now let's go to the ocean and work it out. Right. Then they get to fight. Like, I don't know why we have to do things like a surprise. Well, and so to me, I really appreciate that we get to know that she's lying because that makes her performance so much more compelling in the second half. Like, I can't imagine how that would performance would go if you thought she was just a woman giving in to what this random guy wants her to do. It actually makes her character make sense. You see what she's going through, her guilt, his guilt. And this you know that she already knows him. She already cares yeah. about him when he walks on the door, even though to Judy's credit, she's a remarkable actress. Listen to the scene where they first see each other and she's pretending she doesn't know him. Just let me talk to you. What about you? Why? Because you remind me of somebody. I heard that one before, too. I remind you someone you used to be madly in love with, but then she ditched you for another guy, and you've been carrying the torch ever since. And you saw me and something clicked. Hmm. Oh, you're not far wrong. Well, it's not gonna work. See, a better go. Please, let me come in. You, you, you can leave the door open. I, I just want to talk to you. I mean... I think that Judy does not get enough credit for being a phenomenal actress. I'm talking about Judy here, not even Kim Novak. Like, Judy is playing that off so well. You know, we're getting to hear her real voice, her impatience. She's very convincing in that scene. 
great. But then you think about the, everything that Judy had to do as Madeline. Yeah. Judy had to act passive a bit, lead this man in different directions, and get it so it would feel like his idea to take her to this place or to take her to that place. To be like, I will bring you here at the right time that she wants him to bring her where the de- where the woman is upstairs about to be thrown out. She has to convince him all these things are his idea, which and, is so brilliant. I mean, that's just like improv. That's I, like, could anybody from UCB do that? Well, I mean, I don't know, probably, because we're that good. Um, <laughs> but I do believe this movie is about manipulation and playing into people's egos, you know, like, cause she manipulates him the first half of the movie. And then, you know, he's manipulating her the second half of the movie. You know, these are two people who are really flipping the script on each other. When you see Jimmy Stewart and you hear his voice here, as after he gets out of the mental institution, he is a broken man. He's not the man that you hear in the beginning. Why are you doing this? What, what good will it do? I don't know. I don't know. No good, I guess. I don't know. By the way, let's play him talking to Midge. So, Brazier, you know about those things. You're a big boy now. I've never run across one like that. It's brand new. Revolutionary uplift. No shoulder straps, no back straps, but does everything a Brazier should do. Works on the principle of the cantilever bridge. It does? Mm-hmm. An aircraft engineer down the peninsula designed it. He worked it out in his spare time. Kind of a hobby. Uh, Do-it-yourself type thing. How's your love life, Midge? (laughs) A couple things. I love this scene so much because, like, just that cut of like him being like, here's a bra. How's your love life? And we Mm. all know what's going through his head. But B, this is a scene about... What would his relationship be like with Midge? They're talking about romance, about bras, about underwear in the most bridge cantilevered suspension type of way. I mean, this this romance would be a logical, orderly, engineered romance where everything was in place. And he rejects that for this romance with like the tragic, tragic Kim Novak. And he falls prey to what I think every single man in a noir film falls prey to. These films are all about one thing. This dummy thinks this hot girl could really like him. That's what we saw with Fred McMurray. Well, but hold on. Let's go one step further and say I think that this character falls victim to what every stereotypical male falls victim to. The thing that's unattainable is better than the thing that is attainable. You know what I'm saying? It's like he has this great relationship with Midge. It's playful. It's fun. But he is falling in love with Kim Novak, who doesn't even speak until like one third into the film. Like there's no connection there. He's just falling in love with her from a distance. It's like watching uh, an MSNBC investigative report where it's like the man killed his wife because he thought the nanny was into him. Like thought. The nanny was into him, not they had an affair. It's the guy just assuming that there's no there's no reason why they shouldn't be together, even though he knows nothing about them. And this is a movie that I think like goes right to as far on that believability edge as you can, which is why I think it works so well as a dream movie. Mm. I mean, at the time when this movie didn't do well, Hitchcock said he thought a lot of it really was the audience having a problem with the age gap between Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. I mean, Jimmy Stewart was over twice Kim Novak's age. He's like 50 and she was 25. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody's like, uh, no, thank you for that. 
But to me, it works really well, that age gap with the first half of this movie when he's just in love with her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, what Jimmy Stewart brings to this, to this love story he has with a woman who he falls in love with before she talks, when we see her in a graveyard framed in flowers and gravestones, mm. the most ominous of all symbols. I was actually at that church a couple of weeks ago. It was pretty cool. Really? And uh, they had to take away the gravestone from yeah, there, right? Because they did. Of, Yeah. Because it was like, we don't want people coming here as a tourist attraction. Exactly. It was Easter Sunday or it was Easter weekend. So it was like, oh too crazy anyways to go inside but I was like oh hello church but anyways what Jimmy Stewart brings to this is just this like sincerity and this dopiness you want to be on his side I mean here is actually Hitchcock's daughter uh, Pat explaining it I think Jimmy personified for my father every man so that when people went to see a picture they could put themselves in Jimmy's place and especially in Vertigo he wanted the audiences to identify with Jimmy which is what everybody did I mean I will say where it doesn't work for me is the second half wait that's where it works for me really oh my gosh because I think the first half of the movie is not hard but asks a lot of the audience to go with you on this journey you don't understand what you're really watching I mean you do but it's a very slowly paced, quiet, patient film. And then when you see the complete unraveling, and this is what I was talking about before, playing those two scenes kind of back to back, you see Jimmy Stewart, his whole character makes, you know, 180 switch in a way that you're like, you see him as a shell of a man. And I like him as this old man who's trying to hold on to to something and, and, and uh, it makes the whole piece sad and tragic and I like all that too I do I like how his hair is so gray that we we had this Jimmy who was this like young idealist going to Washington gonna save the planet and then here he is later in his career decades later being so broken I love all that I love him being like this might be my last chance for like yeah. a beautiful hot woman who might love me it's harder for me to buy that Kim Novak likes him that Judy Barton has like chosen him I can't quite buy that but I don't need to also you know, but I, don't you I, think I, I that she about it. don't don't you think that she falls for him the same reason why he falls for her? Like he is looking out for her. He is introduced to her as damaged goods, and so he's like, "I can protect her. I saved her. You know, literally from the water. I you know put her in my bedroom and I took care of her." And they're he's, probably like, "If you take if you save somebody's life, they're your responsibility." I just think that like, but I, she ruins his life. But I think in the beginning. He is of the high status position looking after a low status position. And so I think it's like, you know, some people like that kind of a relationship where you're always the provider and like that's how you keep somebody close. And then when it flips in the second act, she's almost taking care of him. She doesn't need to dye his hair. She feels bad that he, he's gone insane. So she's only doing this because she's trying to you know, make amends, but she's taking care of him. I mean, yeah, when you look at the movie, they're they're really mirror reflections of each other, each half, you know? I mean, sort of, but I don't know if she feels like she's taking care of him. What I hear in Judy is this complete brokenness, you know? This idea, like, I mean, listen to the desperation in her voice where she just says, fine, do whatever you want to me. Judy, please, it can't matter to you. I let you change me, will it do it? I do what you tell me. Will you love me? Yes. Yes. Fine. Fine, then I'll do it. I don't care anymore about me. 
I mean, that's like a complete sublimation of herself. I don't care anymore about me. But don't you also feel like this is a kind of a statement on men and women? Like in the opening scene, we meet Jimmy Stewart. A man has died and he's slightly cavalier, walking around, spinning a cane. Da, 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 da. He can't be a police officer again, but he doesn't seem to be really heavily weighed down by this death that he caused. And Except it, for the vertigo, which is like brand new. Exactly. But later on, we have this woman who has wrecked this man's life. Not only has she been complicit in a murder, but now she's wrecked this man's life. And I think that that sublimation is her guilt coming out. Like, she can't walk away. Like, she thought she was a person who could take that money, trick this guy, and be clean and free. But she's like, I need to make this right. So the way that she's making it right is by giving up herself, the only thing that she has left. You know, she isn't this cold-hearted person, where I'd argue that Jimmy Stewart is. I don't know. I mean, the joy in her voice when she's like, let's go out to dinner. And he's Mm -hmm. like, yes, anywhere you want. She's so happy in that moment to be in a relationship. But then again, I mean, this is a woman who lived basically the same life as the fictional Carlotta Valdez. You know, she was the mistress of a married man, and then she went a little crazy. You know, she really went too far in this, and then she was abandoned by him. You get the sense that, like, she was totally, totally dumped by Gavin Elster. Mm. And now she's back in this like hotel room where she's lived for a long time. I mean, the day after Jimmy Stewart goes crazy, she's probably on a date with Gavin Elster somewhere, you know, and then he dumps right. her. Well, I mean, yeah, because she believes that she did that out of love and now she's alone. And I think that you go back to this idea of like where she's from. She's from Kansas and she's, you know, probably completely, utterly looking for companionship on any level. And I think this is a San Francisco story, but it could be a very much a Hollywood story. It's like, it's a lonely city and she's just looking for something. And you know what? This person who's obsessed with her, she'll take it. Clearly she's not, uh, you know, in making great relationship choices anyway. I but mean, she's willing to slam the door on a lot of dudes. But this is but, an abusive yeah, relationship. Yeah, it I is mean, an abusive relationship. I mean, we're I'm, seeing yeah. it through those eyes. You I'm know? not saying that Jimmy Stewart is bad in this movie. But I am just saying, for this as a thought experiment, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be fun to swap Jimmy Stewart out with, like, an actor who might have more chemistry with her where you could actually picture her being like, yes, I would give up everything to be with you. I just think there is something really universal. I think that, you know, a younger woman is viewed as a sign of youth, and it's it's all about what she does for him. If they did have more chemistry— then it's a romance. This is not a romance. This is a man who doesn't care what she wants. He has defined her in the beginning and then found this woman and is redefining her to fit what he wants. He has, she has no say in it. It's like, just do what I want you to do. And I feel like you see this element to him where it's like, I don't care what you want. Like, I, I want this. And I, you know, at one point. Like, I mean, that's all true. I mean, that's yeah. totally true. Like, I totally believe at the beginning. Like, Jimmy Stewart is never really in love with Madeline because there is no Madeline. You can't, no be, Madeline, in, you yeah. can't be in love with somebody who doesn't exist. This, I'm not saying that I want this to be the model of a good relationship at all. I think the fact that we try to make everything good is really frustrating. This is about a bad relationship, totally. I'm just saying when everybody watches this movie through Jimmy Stewart's point of view, there's a little bit, a bit of me that wants to be in Judy's point of view and I'm not totally there. I hear what you're saying and it's just not her movie. You know, it, it's it's all about how Jimmy needs to possess this woman. And like, it, like almost I feel like anytime you would see her with a dialogue scene when he's not around, it wouldn't make a difference. I mean, yes, totally. I'm not demanding reality from this mm-hmm. at all. 
I'm just saying that this is another example of the movies that do not understand female desire or do not really think of it beyond things of guilt and obligation. And this girl must be lonely until this dude knocks on her well, door. She has a full life. We see her with friends. It, isn't that why this movie is a little bit strong? Because he wouldn't even think about her point of view. It doesn't make a difference. You know, like the story he's telling, it's like she is a prop in this man's world. And I hear what you're saying. I totally get it. But I think it almost makes the film stronger because it's so on the nose that it's like if she had more of a dynamic point of view, it would almost lose that so personalized vision of this movie. Like this guy, which is totally, you're right. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that's true. It's just the agony of her being like, I will change myself for her. It's terrible. If she was looking at like, Rock Hudson or even Humphrey Bogart, I'd be like, yeah, mm. yeah. I just want a little bit of yeah. I just want to be like, yeah, right. I get it. Right. I mean, it makes it more tragic that he's not. Have you ever never, I mean. Uh, <laughs> Have I ever disguised myself as somebody else and then run back into the band that I betrayed? No, I, well, I was going to say, well, you know what I was going to say? Yes. I mean, have no. you? <laughs> but I mean, and that's why you'll never get my DNA. I feel like some of the worst mistakes I ever made when I was dating we're like making these weird compromises. I look back on it now. I'm like, what the fuck? Why would I ever do that? Like at one point I literally considered moving to Florida. What? Yeah. And, and no, no offense to Florida, but I was working as like an actor at that point and I was getting some success. You were going to give it, it up? Give it up what? because a girlfriend that I was dating wanted to go there. And I literally justified it to myself. I was like, maybe I could like work at like Walt Disney World or something like that. When I think about that now, it almost makes me nauseous. Like, I don't know why, but in the in the throes of that that relationship, the idea of like breaking up with this person seems so, you know, it's not me. It's it's not even me, a reflection of me in that moment. It was just like the desperation of that moment. I don't know. I just feel like I identify with that shit decision that you make sometimes when you're a little lost. And I think relationships can do that to you. Yeah, I totally do too. And I I appreciate that Vertigo gives us a chance to talk about all that. Yeah. You know, I really do. I really do. I was just saying, maybe he's miscast. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, but by maybe. the way, by, by the way, I will say that the first thing that I noticed in this film, and I don't know if it's because it's color or whatever, Jimmy Stewart looks old. He mm-hmm. does look old to me. I he mean, does he, not look like he could have gone to college with Midge. Well, Midge is 15 years younger than him, too. I mean, yeah, like, but they're like in yeah. college when we were in college together. No way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, although that doesn't stop most. I mean, we, we can get into a whole world of how men are always mismatched with their female counterparts. But here's one thing I want to talk about in regards to all this. We're talking a lot about how Hitchcock, you know, is making a movie that potentially is his point of view or a version of it. But. Here's a man who is known for being a taskmaster, known for really driving his leads insane. But here, he doesn't do it to Kim Novak. He doesn't do it at all. She said, I had a great time with him. Like, I, he barely gave me a note. She said, I knew how to calibrate my performance based on like what I saw in Jimmy Stewart's eyes. Yeah, I mean, people talk a lot about like, the few times Kim Novak maybe raised her hand and complained. I mean, like, mm. one of the big things is that Kim Novak didn't want to wear a gray suit because she felt like blondes looked bad in gray, that she looked bad in gray, which was exactly what Hitchcock wanted. He wanted a blonde who looked a little weird. Mm-hmm. To which I also want to say, I like wearing gray. I didn't know blondes couldn't wear gray. I thought until, she looks great in gray. I think she looks great in gray. By the way, the costume's designed by Edith Head. I mean, and that's just, you know, I think the costumes are beautiful in this movie. I mean, they really are. They're gorgeous. I and love they play- the black dress with the white 
coat and the black scarf. And they play with like the ideas of color in such an, an insane way. Like I really feel like uh, it's just like what you said, like they're psychologically jarring. And I think that was like what Hitchcock was trying to do. Yeah. So like it's weird because whenever people talk about the making of this movie, they're always like, Kim Novak was mad about the suit. You know, and you're like, well, mm. fine. Yes. And also they talk about how Kim Novak was on strike when the film started. You know, Kim oh. Novak, by the way, I find really interesting. Like there's a good biography about her if you ever want to read it. And, you know, her whole story was she was just a pretty girl who kind of worked as like an appliance model. She would be like at refrigerator display stores oh, wow. being like, hello. Yep. She was voted Miss Deep Freeze at the convention. Love that. And she winds up in Hollywood, you know. At this time, when they're looking for another beautiful blonde to, you know, make sure they have a backup Marilyn in case anything goes wrong with that one. They're like, how do we make another blonde in the studio system? And it's Harry Cohn at Columbia, total dickbag, um, who made a lot of great actresses and made a lot of great films. But he basically was like, I'm going to make this girl over for sure. And he kind of picked her out almost as like the last one he was going to do this to because the, stu- the studio system right, is dying right, yeah. at this point. And so they had big fights about things like he wanted her to change her name. He didn't want her last name to be Novak. He thought it was too ethnic. Oh, interesting. And she refused. She kept her name because she had this kind of attitude of like, she didn't die to be an actress. It wasn't like the sole goal of her life was to Mm -hmm. act. So she could walk away at any minute. She didn't really care. And so Kim Novak was really used to this like push-pull of fighting against a man who was controlling her. In this case, it was Harry Cohn. Like Harry Cohn would stake out where she lived and he would have like guys watching the entrance and exit of her house to make sure she didn't go on any dates with anybody she wasn't supposed to go on dates with. Whoa. And actually when this movie was like coming out, when it was getting ready to go into production, she had just fallen in love with Sammy Davis Jr. And Harry Cohn killed that. He was like, you are not allowed to get married to Sammy Davis Jr. Do you know what that would do to your career? And he was just controlling everything about her life. So she went on strike right when this movie was about to start because she realized that Harry Cohn, get this, this is how the studio system worked. Because this wasn't a Columbia film. Paramount was paying Harry Cohn's Columbia. They were paying him $250,000 for the rights to use Kim Novak in this movie. $250,000. And you know what Harry Cohn was paying Kim, her cut? He was only paying her $1,250 a week. Whoa. So she was like, are you kidding me? So she went on strike at the beginning of this film. And she was like, I'm not going to do this until you pay me more. You know, the original actress who was even supposed to do it before Kim Novak was Vera Miles. Ah, she could have been a contender. Well, Vera Miles gets pregnant. So Kim Novak's brought in, but then Kim Novak is busy shooting. And they promise her like a vacation after she's done shooting. And then Vera Miles is like, actually, now I've had my baby and I'm back. Let's put me to work. And then Hitchcock kind of pulls a Hitchcock and is like, no, we'll do Kim Novak instead. And so he still is playing these games with his leads. But it's, it's interesting, like what this movie would have been with Vera Miles. I think Kim Novak is a better choice. I mean, they got so far with the Vera Miles thing that they even painted that Carlotta painting with Vera Miles' yeah. face. Like, that actually exists. I mean, in 1958, Kim Novak was, like, the bombshell. Like, she was the one. Everybody was in love with her. She was, like, the 1958 vision of just sex. Got it. Which you totally see in that scene where he, like, takes her out from the water and she's, yeah. like, in his room in the bathtub, you know, or in her in that bathtub. And he's a little bit of a creep, right? I mean, I feel like... Him undressing her and putting her in the bed, it seemed slightly creepy to me. Like it, you well, know. There's an interesting mix of creepy and not creepy in that scene, right? Because that scene starts with this pivot, kind of like the silence of the lambs turning around our yeah. pivot. And what you see is first Scotty's apartment, the swank magazines. You see all of her underwear hanging up in the kitchen like mm-hmm. it's dry. So you know she's not wearing it. And then you pan around and see her in bed. 
And then when he comes into the room, she's super normal about it. And that was actually not Hitch's choice. That was the production code. Oh, wow. The production code was like, you can have her naked in his bed, but you need to make this as unweird as possible. So they made him have her be unruffled about it and act like it was not a wow. big deal. Because if she acted like a big deal, if she had more of a human reaction to like, oh, God, I'm naked in some man's bed, then that would be more sexy. They didn't even want to highlight how unnerving it was. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think going back to what you talked about earlier, that's the same reason why that bra scene is the way the bra scene is. You know, we're talking about the cantilever bridge and everything like that. That is the production code saying it can't be that sexy. You can show a bra, you could talk about a bra, but you gotta take the sex away from it. And, and in a weird way, I think it helps inform the scenes a little bit because they're a little bit more stilted. They're more surreal, which is what this yeah. film is. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the one person in this world who is not surreal is Midge, who is just watching this whole thing go down and being like, excuse me, you don't think this is weird? I mean, listen to Midge when he explains what's happening, what his new job is. You haven't told me everything. No, I've told you enough. Well, who's the guy and who's the wife? Out. I've got things to do. I know. The one that phoned, your old college chum, Elster. Midge, out, please. Out. And the idea is that the beautiful Mad Carlotta has come back from the dead and taken possession of Elster's wife. <laughs> oh, now, Johnny, really, come on. Well, I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what he thinks. Well, what do you think? Well, I... Is she pretty? Carlotta? No, not Carlotta, Elster's wife. Yes. I guess you'd consider that she would... I think called... I'll go take a look at that portrait. A couple things, like Midge, by the way, is added to this movie super late. Really? Yeah, she's one of the last additions in the script because this whole movie without Midge was more just like, boy sees girl, boy loves girl, boy follows girl, girl dies, boy is betrayed by a girl again. And when Jimmy Stewart read that script, he was like, eh, it's a little too weird. And so in one of the last drafts, in his third writer with Samuel Taylor, Hitchcock and Taylor, Taylor specifically came up with this character of Midge as to have a person in this film who's not insane. Basically, to have a person in the film that, like, you can relate to and that is speaking sort of the truth that is grounding this in any sort of reality. And they did that to try to get Jimmy Stewart back on board so that this film wasn't so weird, you know. And she never, by the way, even met Kim on the set because all of their scenes right, were yeah. apart. But she has that fantastic scene just right after this where she sees Kim Novak run out of Jimmy Stewart's apartment after she's, like, wet and he's on the phone. And you just see her try to keep her face calm and a little bit of a quiver and just decide she's going to be okay with it yeah. or act okay with it. And it's the, this delicate little moment that I love so much. Well, it's interesting in the original ending of the film, they had one scene tacked on, which was, you know, after Kim Novak falls to her death again, or I guess the real, you know, really falls to her death. In the original end, you would go back to Midge's apartment and she's listening to a radio report uh, about the pursuit of Gavin Elster across Europe. She switches the radio off. Scotty enters the room. They share a drink and look out the window in silence. And, you know, they said that that may have been shot because uh, it was part of the production code administration that you need to like catch the bad guy. But I love the fact that she's his home. Like, he goes back to her. It's like, all right, well, now she's dead. All right, Midge, what do you got? If uh, the love of my life is dead, I'll go back to uh, number two, who will always be waiting. And there she is waiting for him. But there is also this kind of interesting thing in the film where I think the film is kind of playing with like two different ideas of what working womanhood is. You know, you have 
the rejected midge who has like her own career and doesn't need him. And then just like listen to this scene when uh, Scotty first meets Gavin Elster, you know, the rich guy, and the way Gavin talks about the past. So I decided as long as I had to work at it, I'd come back here. I've always liked it here. How long have you been back? Almost a year. You like it, huh? Well, San Francisco's changed. The things that spell San Francisco to me are disappearing fast. Like all these? Yes, I should have liked to have lived here then. Color, excitement, power, freedom. Uh, shouldn't you be sitting down? I just love that moment because it just shows like we're always living in a world where we're upset at the changes that have gone on. I wish it was like, oh, like he wants it to be old San Francisco, but people right now want it to be old San Francisco. Like it, you always want it to be like the way it was in your youth. I thought that was a very interesting point of view or just a way to show like kind of how things never really change. Yeah. Like even that Ernie's restaurant, they're always going to in this movie with yeah. the red velvet and the tapestries mm-hmm. and everything. I mean, that's not what a restaurant looked like in 1958. If you were in San Francisco, that restaurant was sort of like also going to like a Trader Vic's or something. It was a costume restaurant as like the gay nineties of San Francisco. Like right. people, when you went there, like, ha ha, they've got electric candelabras. Isn't that funny? And then one of the other things that Elster reminisces about is like when he's talking about Carlotta, you know, mm-hmm. this like San Francisco figure who was the woman who fell in love with the rich guy. And then when he dumped her and left her pregnant with a kid, she went crazy. And he sort of reminisces about it. He's like, you know, back then a man could just like take a woman and then leave her. And that's what you could do. And he's like reminiscing, like he's nostalgic for this past at the same time, even though it's kind of what he's doing in effect to Judy. Uh, 100% what he's doing. Like, I mean, he is foreshadowing exactly what he's doing. And by the way, doubling it because he's killing his wife and he's like living fine and he's like dumping his mistress this guy is getting shit done yeah i mean if you think about what this movie is it's sort of like two guys also being like women are crazy right yeah makes sense she's crazy women are crazy can't really predict them and then after the wife dies after the madeline dies they have a jury to decide why she died the jury is all made of men. Mm-hmm. And here they are coming to their verdict. Yeah. We've reached a verdict. Thank you. The jury finds that Madeline Elster committed suicide while of unsound mind. Your verdict will be so recorded. Dismissed. I mean, I'm not saying that this is a problem of the movie at all. I want to be really clear. I'm not right. saying, like, how dare this movie be sexist. I'm saying this movie is sort of about sexism in it's that way. It's unabashedly, yeah. absolutely yeah. about it. I mean, that movie is to feminism what the courtroom scene in To Kill a Mockingbird is about racism. You know, men being like, yeah, women were crazy. You know, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Do you think Scotty's a good detective? You know... I don't think he's a good detective because he never looked at a picture of Elster's wife. He just waited out front for a woman who matched the description of her and then went off and went to follow her. Like, it would seem to me you would build some sort of a profiling system to make sure you're not just following a random blonde. Has and, he learned nothing from Chinatown? Oh, come on. He needs <laughs> to get on it. Yeah, I mean, look, he loses her in the hotel, which... I don't understand what that magic trick was. When I she, love that. It's so surreal. It's so surreal. It makes no sense. But 
was she trying to lose him? What actually happened there? Did she have the keys to the real apartment? How did she sneak past the woman who was uh, sponging off her flowers? Uh, I don't know. You know. Speaking of disappearing, I love that shot where they go to the woods together and she walks behind a tree and you see this terror in his face like, did she just vanish? It's like, watch, you have kids. It's like toddlers being tested for object yeah. permanence. When you hide an object and they're suddenly like, Oh my God, that ball is gone. It's behind the it's behind yeah. the cup. It must be gone forever. And there's something in his face that is so childlike, where he's like, I I he's reverting to basically being an infant around this woman. He also has experienced it in the past where she can disappear in an instant. I mean, she leaves his apartment, she's up in that hotel, she's always just kind of vanishing. He can't hold her. And that's what the second half of the movie is about. Like, not only am I going to hold you, I'm never going to let you go now. And I'm going to make you what you want. Like, almost he gave her too much freedom. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by Toro. Yes, Toro, the peer-to-peer car sharing service, which means that you can book any car you want, wherever you want, from a community of local hosts. It's incredible. This is a way of getting a car and skipping the whole hassle of the rental car industry and just being like, do you have a cool car? May I rent it? I have a cool car. Do you want to rent it? And if you want to rent it or be rented or do any of the renting things, that's amazing because Toro is available in over 5,500 cities across the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Germany. That means there are almost 9 million users worldwide right now using Toro, and you can be 9 million in one. How rad is that? So on Toro, what you can do is you can choose the best car for you for your weekend, whether you're, like, local or visiting. You want a convertible. You want a moving van. You want to hire, like, the raddest car to go, like, drive out into the desert and take some pictures for, like, your Instagram or, like... I don't know. Do, do people still Tinder? Yeah. You want to look really cool in your Tinder. Be like, oh, I got this rad VW van. Check me out, man. I'm cool. Hang out with me this summer. I'm the raddest. You can do that on Toro at a lower cost usually than most traditional rental car agencies. So you can just customize your experience for whatever your adventure demands and not just check things like, I don't know, small car. Whatever kind of wheels you're looking for, Turo can help you find them because they have over 350,000 vehicles listed around the globe and tons of hosts who are available to deliver the car right to you. Also, you even have the option of getting insurance. So skip the rental counter, get some Turo, and you can do that by downloading the Turo app. That is T-U-R-O on the App Store or Google Play, or you can visit Turo.com, T-U-R-O.com, and get $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Turo with the promo code UNSPOOLED at checkout. Terms apply, and that is Turo.com. Go get driving. Well, you know what, Paul? Let's take a pause really fast and talk to a Hitchcock expert, somebody who has written three books on Hitchcock. They've written Alfred Hitchcock's Movie Making Masterclass, they've written The Making of Hitchcock's The Birds, and they've written Hitchcock and the Making of Marnie. Please welcome Tony Lee Morrell. Well, so Tony, you know, you write books yourself, and one of the things I really want to ask you about the Hitchcock approach is, what would you say the difference is between mystery and suspense? Mystery he always said, was an intellectual process, like a whodunit. Um, A mystery could be, for example, who stole money at a bank. Uh, Suspense, he always said, was an emotional process. And he always used the example of a ticking bomb. If you know that there's a bomb under a table and it's going to go off in five minutes, that's suspense. It's an emotional process. I mean, the idea that he was driven by emotion, I find that really interesting because I wonder, like, when we're in an era right now where I think you take plots really literally, you know, where audiences are sort of trained to be, like, looking for plot holes. But, I mean, I feel like Hitchcock, would he encourage us to scale back on 
the literalness of his films and get more into the emotional dream state? Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, he was often criticized um, by critics and people of his day for kind of cock and ball stories, far-fetched stories, and Vertigo is a prime example of that. He wasn't concerned with the critics or uh, the, the fastidious nature about solving every answer in a film. He, he wanted to create an emotional dreamlike state. He wanted to put the audience through it like a roller coaster ride or a trip to the haunted fun house. And films like Vertigo and Marnie are supreme examples of that because they're very dreamlike. And also, you know, we talk so much about Hitchcock's blondes, but one of the things that you really point out is Hitchcock's favorite color, which is something we don't talk that much about. It, here in Vertigo, it seems very much to be green. Yes, his his favorite color was green because I, I got that from the wardrobe mistress, Rita Riggs, who worked on the birds, Psycho and Marnie. He decorated his house in Bel Air shades of green. It was very cool, calming color for him. And it's also obviously the color of the afterlife. So when you first see uh, Madeline, Kim Novak, in Ernie's restaurant, she's wearing this beautiful emerald green dress. And later she drives her green car through the hills of San Francisco. And the most famous sequence in Vertigo is when she appears as Madeline once more dressed in this grey suit. And Hitchcock deliberately filmed that at the Empire Hotel in San Francisco because it had this big green neon light. So when she comes out of a bathroom with her hair done up dressed as Madeline, it's like a ghost. She's bathed in this green light from the neon. And so that was very important for Hitchcock. What was his relationship like with Kim Novak? I, I last interviewed Kim Novak a couple of years ago at the Cannes Film Festival, and she's got nothing but admiration now for Hitchcock. She has only very fond words to say about him because she she appreciates the importance of Vertigo and her place in film history. I also interviewed the production manager who sadly passed away now. His name was Doc Erickson. And he said that Kim's view has changed over the years because when she filmed Vertigo, she was only 24. And she was obviously a feisty, strong-headed blonde who who's just been through the studio system herself at Columbia with Harry Kahn. And so she had very firm opinions about what she would wear and what she wouldn't want to wear. And Hitchcock had firm opinions. So it was a kind of a meeting of two firm-headed individuals and Hitchcock won out. But I mean, none of Hitchcock's films with Tippi Hedren are on the list. And I know that like you're sort of specializing in those. You wrote a book on The Birds, you wrote a book on Marnie. I mean, in those performances, in the actresses themselves and what they brought to the film, how do you sort of compare? Because we talk about Hitchcock blondes like they're monoliths. But what do you think Tippi was doing different than Kim? Kim was more, obviously, more of an experienced actress. She had more films under her belt. Um, Tippi was a complete unknown. She'd only done commercials. The famous story is that Hitchcock saw her in a Seago diet drink commercial and said, I'm going to make this girl a star. And so his belief, because he felt that the birds didn't need any stars, he was a star, the birds were the star. And that he'd, remember, he'd just done Psycho, which um, made $18 million at the box office. And so his belief was that anything he could touch would turn to gold. If he, had, he really wanted Grace Kelly and Cary Grant for the roles, but they weren't available. But 
Kim Novak, um, I think the general consensus is that she brings an enormous amount to the power of vertigo. And many critics believe that she, she would be an even greater than what Vera Mars could have done with a role because of her presence, the, the duality, her sensuousness. And she really captures the spirit of Judy, the shop girl in particular. I mean, do you think if Grace Kelly hadn't become a princess, he would have just committed himself to her for the rest of his life in terms of his star? Well, he always he always wanted the definitive Hitchcock blonde. But remember that he'd just gone through the same process with Ingrid Bergman, who also did three films. And Ingrid Bergman similarly abandoned him for Rossellini, um, the Italian director who she later married. Um, but with... With Grace Kelly, he was enamoured by her because she became a princess. And so they stayed on very friendly relations. He would go and visit her with Alma in Monaco. And so he was he was very much in awe of uh, Grace being a princess. And he would often joke, oh, the role's for Grace, but she's off being a princess. So he always said he would find the next Grace Kelly. So he tried with Vera Miles and then somewhat with Eva Mary Saint in North by Northwest, who is very fond of, and then finally Tippi Hedren. Here's kind of my big question is like, you know so well that Vertigo has gone through this rise and fall in, in esteem from critics, esteem from audiences. And after being mixed and bumpy, it has now just ascended. You know, some people put it at like the number one on the list of, of the best films ever made. Do you think that he would be surprised to see how Vertigo is received today? I think it was a very, certainly a very personal film for him. And I remember someone complimented him on Vertigo and he had tears in his eyes because it was really not by the critics at the time. And he withdrew it from circulation partly um, as a financial means to secure its success when it was later re-released. But I think he, it was certainly very personal to Hitch. He always quotes Shadow of a Doubt as his favourite film because... Of a small, it's his first time, uh, a really American film where he encapsulates a kind of small town America. But Vertigo is certainly his most personal, where he puts his feelings up on the screen and he looks at the duality of women and basically the notion of romantic love and the idea that we are in love with an image quite often than a real person, or we, we create this image about a person. And often are very disappointed when you find out the true person underneath the image. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason many, particularly male critics, like Vertigo. But when you look at the female critics who, who admire Vertigo, I think they see it as very much a critique of male patriarchy or the way that women are treated. But also, um, they also... I think I understand that Hitchcock is very much on the women's side um, and he really makes a study of the abjection of women in patriarchal society of how m women have been manipulated in the past. And, and he's very much pro-heroin. I think that's why he makes a famous reveal um, two thirds of the way through Vertigo of who Judy really is. She really is pretending to be Madeline. And the audience knows that. But the Jimmy Stewart character doesn't. And that was a really big decision on Hitchcock's part to do that. And the studio were against that because they wanted to save the reveal to the end. But in doing that two thirds way through the movie, you're now looking at Jimmy Stewart's character 
and you're really looking at him as a very sick man and and wondering what's going to happen. But you have so much sympathy for Judy at this point because you realise that she is just being totally manipulated by this man, um, almost like a doll. And so I think Hitchcock was very clever. And he did did similar things in Notorious with Ingrid Bergman. You feel great sympathy for the suffering heroine because, again, she's being manipulated by the man that she loves, Cary Grant. I mean, my personal favorite Hitchcock film, and it, I can't say it's the best, it's just my favorite, is Saboteur. I don't know why I love this movie so much. I just have always thought it was such terrific fun. Um, but you seem to really stick up for Marnie, and because that's not a film on this list, I'd love to just hear your passion plea for people taking Marnie seriously and putting it sort of back in the list of the best Hitchcock films. I first saw Marnie when I was 18 at university. I was doing zoology and psychology at the time. And so I was very much the Mark Rutland character and very, very interested in Freudian analysis and very interested in instinctual behavior. So what's great about Hitchcock films, they mean different things for you at different periods of your life. So I haven't seen Marnie for a couple of years, two of um, probably about five or maybe 10 years now, but I still still enormously important film for me because of the way Hitchcock uses camera technique to involve yourself in subjective states. So you really see what Marnie's feeling through the various zoom lenses, red suffusions, flashbacks, back projection. So it's very much a filmmaker's film. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to a Hitchcock student today as the best film. I would say that would be North by Northwest. Because for me, that is the definitive Hitchcock um, because of its entertainment, sheer entertainment value and uh, production values as well. It's, I think North by Northwest is a superb film. I love that. Well, Tony, it has been so interesting talking to you. I really appreciate you making time to talk to us from all the way over there in England. Take care. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye. I, I was wondering if you did any research or you found any research, because I didn't, about kind of the way the movie looks. Like that scene in the Redwood Forest is, is so beautiful. And and the lighting in this movie, you know, with like the green coming in from the, you know, illuminating from the neon sign of the hotel, so beautiful. But then there's a scene in the graveyard, which is so diffused and almost looks um, as if it was an accident, because there's other sequences that are so clean and clear. I was wondering that, too, honestly. Like, there's so many scenes in here that just seem blown out with this white that I associate right now with low-budget digital filmmaking, where they yeah. couldn't get the whites dark enough, where it just everything seems kind of faded. It, but it's hard for me to think that he would want that to happen. I mean, it feels like sort of there's ghosts in the air, spirits in the air. This is me feeling like I'm rationalizing something that I don't know why it's that, that but it's, way. It's, it's also dreamlike. You know, we're following this like kind of this fantasy. I mean, some people have even suggested that this movie is a Jacob's Ladder scenario, something that we talk about a lot on <laughs> how did this get made, that like this is all in Jimmy Stewart's head. Although I don't quite understand how they see that. They say that he actually died and these are the final thoughts, but it would be a very convoluted way to have final thoughts because he's not even met half of these characters to have final thoughts about. I mean, I think it's almost Ozian. The scene that I always think about is where he's like tracking her at the very beginning and she goes in this really gray alleyway and the yeah. camera's like soaking it in. It's like, look at these gross bricks. Look at this dirt everywhere. Look how ugly this is. There's no sun. And he opens the door and it's like, boom, Technicolor flower shop. And it's again... Another shot of a man staring at this woman, just obsessing over her. what is she doing? Like every time he kind of sees her, it's in a 
in a way that is a little bit magical, dreamlike, colorful, bright. And I think if we want to draw a line over to his like psychotic break, you know, which is, I think, one of the most visually interesting sequences in the entire film, you know, when he's in that hospital bed and you have his face and, you know, and, and the spinning and this amazing computer animation that goes on the sequence with the first movie to use computer animation. The you faces know, turning into other faces or yeah. to be one face and it's another face. I mean, can you imagine being in the theater in 1958 and getting to watch that? Oh, it's, I mean, and that you get that from the opening of the movie, like the, you know, again, we talk about that face in the beginning, then you get into those like spirographs that are going around, like yeah. everything is about unnerving you. And even the climactic kiss of the film, you know, the camera rotates around them and we're going back into the past and we're back in the room. It's like, this is a, a master filmmaker. It's a really interesting choice for him. And I feel like because of the reaction of this movie, he moves away from this. What would have happened if people would have said yes to this? You know, if it, they would have loved it as much in '58 as they do now. Exactly. Would we have gotten different films? And he makes a lot of choices. And I think the reason why it's so well regarded now is because inadvertently he's pretty much influenced so many directors from storytelling and from a visual point of view. Yeah, I mean that shot of just him kissing her and the room swirling around them. In him showing you through image what's in his head, you know, image. And not even like in a way where you cut to inside his head and it's like a flashback of I remember kissing her here or something like that. Or or auditory flashbacks, which can sometimes drive me nuts. Mm. I don't like it when like a scene just happens and half an hour later they like replay like, remember, don't go oh. into the closet. Oh, I hate that. It's dummy proofing. It's the worst. It's ridiculous. And that this is not dummy proofing. This is like swirl, swirl, swirl. You know that the stable is not behind them. And yet there it is. And you know everything he's thinking about in a way that this is pure cinema. This is pure cinema. That's what I'm saying. That This movie, in many respects, like while Citizen Kane is like kind of revolutionizing cinema, I think that this movie is is playing in that same world. It's, it's, it's kind of saying, all, now that we know all this, can we do even more of this? You know, it's kind exactly. of, yeah. I mean, in my world, Vertigo will supplant Citizen Kane on this list over my dead body and over my doppelganger's dead body uh, and over my doppelganger's doppelganger's dead body. I think Citizen Kane is wonderful, but I love the spritz of weird perfume that Vertigo adds to the list. I 100% agree. I think if I was to be asked today, which would be long on the top, I think you have to go with Citizen Kane only because... It's when it was made, how it was made, and what it brought forward. Because Citizen Kane influences Vertigo. It influences Hitchcock. It, like, these are, you know, they are... Even though Orson Welles hated Vertigo. <laughs> but I mean, but you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. when something is so lauded for so long, you're looking for a reason to knock it off its perch. You yeah. know, it's like, well, did we really think this through? Is Citizen Kane really the best movie ever made? And that's a very, you know, based on everything we've talked about here, we've seen some amazing films. I still think the sum total of its parts make it the number one film. But you'll always be looking for that movie that's going to try to, you know, take a shot at the mm, crown. There's like you a know? million hip hop songs about this. I reached the top. Now everybody wants to pick me, take yeah, me out. Exactly. <laughs> I did not pull a hip hop song for you, but I did pull a song from. The 90s band Harvey Danger for you. I realized <laughs> this. I was like, where did I know that name? And I was like, all right, do it. Harvey Danger's Carlotta Valdez is actually about Vertigo. Take a listen to the lyrics. Jimmy Stewart follows Kim to where your portrait hangs on a wall. He's such a haunting vision he forgets his partner. 
as someone who was in high school when this came out, uh, I've heard this song millions of times, you know, and it was weird that this is like a, a trend because there's also that What About Breakfast at Tiffany's song. Oh, yeah. You know, there's all these like kind of. I, I sing that to my boyfriend all the time because we don't agree on anything. That's amazing. I love it. Uh, but that like, it's funny that this came about. One of the other tracks on this album was, uh, I know, Amy, you said Disturbing Behavior is the vertigo of the 90s, right? The Katie Holmes movie. And that was, uh, you know, a flagpole sitter that was in that movie. So that's, you know, this <laughs> is a movie really covering the gamut of psychological thrillers. It's true. Uh, um, there's also nods in like Mel Brooks's High Anxiety. Have you seen that one? Oh, yes. I mean, classic Mel Brooks film. Uh, and, and High Anxiety, you know, really takes uh, its poster from Vertigo, that face of Jimmy Stewart, you know, over an image, you know, rotating. It's so good. I have to play a clip of High Anxiety just because it's Madeline Kahn. Oh, Richard, Richard, the world has gone crazy. I mean, nothing makes any sense anymore. I mean, I don't know what to believe and what not to believe. My life is just all topsy-turvy. I mean, one minute you're singing love songs and the next minute you're pumping bullets into an innocent man and then it is not you. It is, not, it is the other Thorndike. I mean, how much more can a girl take? I mean, my nerves are cracking. I feel like I'm going to die. I mean, I think I am going to explode. Vicky, Vicky, take it easy, darling. Take it easy. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm just so close to my menstrual cycle that I could scream. <laughs> I mean, that version of like a high strung 70s femme fatale heroin yeah. nutcase is so perfect. I like the idea of like blending that era into this era where she's like in a head to toe, like what I don't know, is that Gucci print? Yeah. She's in a head to toe Gucci print with like a Gucci car. Oh, I mean, it's, it rem- did you see Under the Silver Lake yet? No, I have to. Ugh. I'm too busy uh, just kind of watching movies for this podcast I do called Unspooled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what Under the Silver Lake does is like putting noir into like the modern, modern yeah. era. Like, I mean, it's basically like if Jimmy Stewart was like a fuck boy right. of Echo Park or Silver Lake. I mean, it's perfect. And they figure out how to put a noir character into this too. Like how to just like, noir can still exist in our world, even though we think of it as a thing that happens only in like the 40s well, and 50s. Well, I think Ryan Johnson did a great job with that with Brick. I think that there's so many examples of... You can tell noir stories. It's it just sort of is how can you subvert the genre? We're not in that, you know, 1940s hard-boiled thing, you know. So what what's the new version of that? And I think there's plenty of uh, plenty of things that even you know, feel like noir, but they're not actually noir. You know, it's just this person getting going on a journey. Well, I mean, we know this movie is received poorly. We know that this movie, uh, you know, gets these mixed reviews. It does, uh, you know, less than all of Hitchcock's previous movies. What was uh, one of the, the worst reviews or one of the most interesting reviews? Oh, man, I picked out this one because of the first line. This is from Time magazine. And mind you, this is in the context of this being a world where Alfred Hitchcock was actually maybe best known right now for doing a lot of stuff on TV. Mm-hmm. And the kind of the theory of Vertigo, in a way, was that he had now become so popular and mainstream on TV that he didn't have to do popular mainstream movies. He could do whatever weirdness he wanted. So in a way, Vertigo was like him expressing the things that he couldn't quite do on TV. Uh, And that is the context of this review. Hollywood's best-known butterball, Alfred Hitchcock, has been spread pretty thin in recent years. The old master, now a slave to television, has turned out another Hitchcock and Bull story, in which the mystery is not so much whodunit as who cares. Worked up from a novel by the French team that wrote Diabolique and Demonique, the picture tells what happens to a victim of vertigo when he meets a dizzy blonde. When she goes around in circles, he goes around in circles too, until he falls. 
Uh, then he gets into a little bit of plot. He says, he's trying to make a bunch of jokes. Detective Stewart saves her from the drink and takes her home for coffee with sugar. Soon, he's crazy about the girl, but the girl is apparently just plain crazy. One day she eludes him and jumps to her death. It's why they would do all this, like, plot something. Yeah. Uh, from the nearest steeple. Or does she? If she does, then who is that redhead Stuart sees on the street about six months later? And then here he gets mean again. Surely only Kim could look so beatifically bovine. Whoa. And surely by this time, the question is of little interest, particularly after a half hour or so of psychiatric disquisition that interrupts the plot and suspends the suspense. It's interesting that that review is so personal. And I think it goes into his psyche. You know, you have a guy who I think is always being criticized for his weight and and his stature. And I think there's a lot of how good does he have to be before you can just refer to him in a pleasant way? He's a master filmmaker, has been making, you know, films since the 20s. I think there really might be a thing where when a filmmaker is doing work that's not what you expect them to do, mm-hmm. you don't know how to take it. Like, you... Right. A film like this is messy. I'm going to call it messy. I think it is a little messy. I think it drags. I think it's strange. I think the pace is not clicking the way you think it's going to. It's doing whatever it wants. And I think when you see a movie like this, kind of like the way people react to Under the Silver, like you're like, what am I watching? And you're resistant to it. You fight it. The way people still, I think, fight my personal favorite movie of recent vintage, you know, Synecdoche, New York, as a movie oh, that I you're just like, that. what am I watching? But And you want to just be like, I'm smarter than this because I don't get it. But I also feel like this is the way I feel about Coen Brothers films, Kubrick films, Kanye albums, like what, on all you the know, CKs. Yeah. All, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's like you 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 are looking for something. The last thing that you loved and they're not giving you the last thing that you love. They're giving you a new thing. So part of watching the film is kind of like pulling back the expectation to experience something new. And I find that each one of these films gets better and better on on another viewing. When I did do a lot of reading about Vertigo, most of the reviewers would say like, I didn't like this the first time I saw it. I fell in love with this later. I was even talking to one of my friends, a really talented director, and he said, yeah, I watched it once and didn't really pay it that mind. And then I saw it again. It's like, oh, it's genius. And I think rewatching it and knowing where it's going and seeing where the beats are, you I love Coen Brothers films, but I love them more on the second, third viewing. And I feel that way with Kubrick films as well. I think you're right. And I think that's why a list like this is important because I think there's a lot of films that people might feel this way about, but they don't watch them a second or mm-hmm. a third or a fourth time. And that's why what we're doing is really interesting to me because it's like, well, what are we saying you have to give another shot to? And this is one that I think people sort of willed themselves. I think even now I find myself willing myself to figure out why I like this film or why this film matters. All right. But I bet you there's a Simpsons. There is. There is. One of the main things that the Simpsons does is they do like a recurring visual sight gag of the tower, Mm -hmm. which is of course really hard to show up in podcasting. But so what I pulled is from an episode called Homer Loves Flanders. And what happens here is, you know, Homer decides he's going to try to be friends with Flanders because Flanders is always trying to be friends with him. Homer gets a little bit obsessed with Flanders. Flanders starts to have a breakdown. In this scene, picture it, it takes place inside the vertigo clock tower. I picked it because you get to hear the madness going along with the visual. There's Homer. There's Homer, too. That's also Homer. That's Homer! What's the matter, Ned? I... I think I hate Homer Simpson. (gasps) 
Marge, I think I hate Ted Koppel. No, wait. I find him informative and witty. Night. Wait a second. Isn't that more of a... I mean, I thought that's more of like a, a that shooter from the, the yeah the UT, belt yeah yeah it's a little bit it's a little bit UT shooter. I mean, yeah. this episode's from the early '90s before we had right. our pick of shooters. Uh, yeah, but it did have the staircase and it did have the yes, dreams, and right. so I liked the waking up from the dreams. That I was like actually that. almost as close as I could do, besides like just visual stuff. Well, you know, interesting. Just put a button on this. The bell tower uh, that they shot the you know the pivotal scene of this film and the climax and the and the end was totally constructed using scale models, map paintings, and trick photography because the original uh, clock tower had, had burnt down. Um, and so they had no choice but to kind of do all these tricks to create that really uh, kind of amazing set. And you don't see that much of it. You just see a lot of glimpses and a lot of tight close-ups in that world. And I think in a way it makes it more confining, a little bit more scary as well. And interestingly enough... Um, that view down the mission stairwell scene cost $19,000 for just a couple of seconds because uh, that was such a complicated shot. So, you know, you would think, first of all, they'd find a practical location. No, this is, this is so heavily manufactured. And in a way, it goes to, again, show his artistry and his specificity that it doesn't feel uh, manufactured. It doesn't feel steady. This movie really transitions beautifully between sets and real locations in a very seamless way. Um, and in a way that's kind of surprising, I think. And you know what's so weird is like this realism that you kind of see from Hitch and like wanting to be at real locations. Yeah. He was actually using like real people for a lot of this stuff. Like when, when uh, Kim Novak goes to the museum, the guard was like, yeah, that's the painting of Carlotta. Yeah. That's actually the real museum guard. Oh, wow. Yeah, and when you're looking around like Ernie's in the shots where like Kim Novak is coming up to him yeah. in, in the Ernie's restaurant, the people who are working at Ernie's are actually like the owner of Ernie's and the food that all the extras are eating is actually food from Ernie's. He got like weirdly wow. realistic about the strangest things in here. I love that, but by the way, he also got very meticulous about a lot of the scenes. He talked about that scene where she's staring at the portrait in the in the palace. You know, uh, that scene was a week to shoot that little little scene because he wanted the lighting to be just exactly right. I love that kind of crazy genius. Not a fun set to be on, but uh, it looks really. It makes it all that much better when you watch it. Um, I think we talked about where it belongs on the list. If it belongs on the list, I think we both agree it yeah. does. Oh. Uh, at the top of the list, I mean, I, what do you think about the placement right now? I think the placement right now is us as a culture working something out. Number nine on the list. It's This is a movie that is being pulled up and there's movies that are being pulled down. I, I think that that ebb and flows where we want on the list. You know, maybe the list in, in uh, 2007, you know, this is at number nine. And then, you know, maybe it moves all the way up to number three. But then another film that's in the top 10 goes down to 50. You know, it's like, I think, you know, we want this list to be reflective of the generation in which it comes out in. So I think that kind of movement and not getting stayed is just a sign that this list is working in a good way. Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to treat Vertigo and its placement on this list almost like when you tag, like, a wildcat. And you're like... Mm -hmm. I'm going to tag this puma. And then you sort of watch where the puma goes. You just sort of like learn a lot about who yeah. we are, what we're thinking, our terrain, our mental terrain, our yeah. creative landscape by just sort of following this one puma. This is like one to track. I like it. One to track. So next week is another very special episode for me and Paul. It is our look back at the top 50 where we're going to just 
besides going over the top 50 list and also seeing what our Facebook group had as their top 50 films in order, Paul and I are going to give out a couple of our own awards, our own little mini Oscars for the films that we've looked at this year. And also, we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear a couple different things. One of the things I would really love to hear is since we've all kind of gone on this journey together through half of the AFI list, I'd love to hear from you guys just like, what's the number one film that just surprised you that you were like, wow, I'm so glad I watched that. I'm so glad I rewatched that. I keep thinking about that movie this year. I am so glad that this was on part of our list. I'd love to hear about that. And also, I'd love for you guys to give me a mashup elevator pitch. And what I mean by that is like, pick a character from one of these films, pick a setting from another one of the films, and just be like, oh man, Here's my version of a movie that I would make mashing up these two things together. Like for me, Kathy Bates's Unsinkable Molly Brown from Titanic in The Treasure of Sierra Madre. I want to watch her see if she can fuck some shit up over there. I like Kathy Bates. That's my elevator pitch. Give me your elevator pitch. And as always, you're going to make these two phone calls for your number one film that's rattling around your brain and your elevator pitch to 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Cannot wait to talk about all of this with y'all. Have a good week. I want to give a big shout out and a thank you once again to our sponsor for this episode of Unspooled, Toro, the peer-to-peer car sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want, wherever you want, from a community of local hosts. We're talking sports cars, we're talking practical wheels, we're talking whatever you want. Over 350,000 cars, over 9 million users. Look it up. Go to Turo.com. That's T-U-R-O.com or download the Turo app, T-U-R-O, on the App Store, on Google Play, whatever you do. Just remember to get $25 off your first trip when you sign up and you use the promo code UNSPOOLED at checkout. Terms apply. Go have some fun. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus! I mean, Jazos! (laughs) Ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.